be. Man, it is so good to be digging into Mark's gospel here. We're coming to the midpoint in the book, and we're going to be wrapping it up next week. We have our Global Ministry Sunday, and then we dive into Advent, and we'll pick up Mark's gospel up in the new year. But this is our, the, the climax of all of our last 20 weeks of study in the Bible as we've been looking. And Mark has been giving us a remarkable series of responses to Jesus, who he is, what he's like. And throughout this series, uh, I've been looking at also not just the testimonies Mark includes, but also uh, a number of other testimonies to uh, responses to Jesus. Some of those have been just private stories, people that I've known, little anecdotes. Some have been more public figures in the world. But I've found some of the most colorful responses to Jesus have come from musicians, right? Musicians are, their craft is to put uh, beautiful ideas into words, right? They're wordsmiths. That's kind of what we do. So when Bob Dylan went through his, you know, gospel phase, right, he wrote these beautiful albums like, you know, Slow Train Coming with these incredible lyrics in them. And, you know, a whole generation was impacted by the way that worked. Perhaps the most surprising musician in the last few years has been Kanye West's story. Now, Kanye is a crazy guy. Whatever you think of Kanye, I just leave it right there. You know, but here's a guy that was struggling with like mental health issues, like he had a pretty public breakdown and became a born again Christian like in 2019. It was a wild thing. He's out there doing like Sunday services, you know, he's on all the late night talk shows, like Joe Rogan is is interviewing him and he's talking about how to study the Bible and pray and you're just like what is going on with this guy? But out of this season in his life, he created this gospel album simply titled Jesus is king, right? That, that's the concept. Jesus is king. And the final track on that uh, record is Jesus is Lord. He, he puts Philippians 2, 10 through 11, just on repeat. And this is how the album ends here. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. I'm not going to wrap it. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, right? That's, that's how it ends. And you're just like, what on earth is happening? And, you know, he's talking, you know, with all the late night anchormen about this incredible story and testimony of God's grace in his life. But it's just another testimony that Jesus is still relevant. He's still grabbing the headlines. People are still having these dramatic responses. Jesus, and who knows where Kanye will end up from, from one day to the next, but, but he's on his journey, right? God is doing something in his life. And I wanted to start here today because we're coming to the climax of the first part of Mark's gospel. Everything in chapter 1 through 8 has been building to Jesus' question in verse 29, the climactic question in the gospel, who do you say that I am? Right? That's the question right, that everything has been building to. And I'm convinced that this is the most important question each of us has to wrestle with for ourselves, right? Including, but not limited to rappers like Kanye, right? We've all got to wrestle with this question, who do you say I am? So we're going to be getting to the disciples' answer in verse 29 uh, in our scripture reading this morning. But before that, we need to look briefly at the four scenes leading up to their answer because they're all building to this 
big reveal. Each of these little stories is going to take us there. So um, if you want to follow along here, I've kind of laid these out for you a little bit. In scene one, you're going to see Jesus performs yet another sign. Jesus has been performing all these miraculous signs to uh, reveal who he is. Scene two, the Pharisees demand another sign. In scene three, the disciples don't understand the sign. In scene four, Jesus performs yet another sign. And then finally, we get to Jesus' most important question. So everything's building towards this moment and this question. And my aim for this morning's sermon is that we would see Jesus more clearly and follow him more fully. Like the disciples, we would follow them on this journey to to seeing Jesus and following him. And so let's pray as we dive into our sermon this morning. Uh, Father, we've spent the last... 20 weeks just studying the life of Jesus, just being amazed by Jesus. But we recognize that none of that matters if you don't give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that are sensitive, and a willingness to actually do what he said and follow where he leads. So would you come by the power of your spirit to help us see Jesus more clearly and follow him more fully. And we pray that all would be to your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 8 opens with another miraculous sign here. If you're following along in your Bible, which I hope you will, you're going to need it because we're going to be digging in uh, as we're cruising through. Um, and if perhaps you look at this and you go, man, this feeding of the, of the 4,000 sounds familiar, um, that's because Jesus fed a crowd of 5,000 men back in chapter 6. So Instead of reading through this lengthy text here, let me just compare these two feeding accounts for you uh, side by side here. In the feeding of the 5,000, which we covered a couple years ago, and the feeding of the 4,000, both cases, we see that they were in a desolate place with nothing to eat. You have this vast crowds of people who have gathered together. Jesus is teaching them, and they have nothing to eat. In both cases, Jesus has compassion on the crowds, seeing their need He wants to meet it, and he wants to care for them. In both cases, Jesus asks, how many loaves do we have? And in both cases, the crowd is invited to be seated. In both cases, Jesus offers a prayer. And then in both cases, the disciples hand out baskets and baskets and baskets and baskets of food for the crowds. In both cases, the crowd eats. They're satisfied. In both cases, there's plenty of leftovers. And in both cases, Jesus dismisses the crowd. So that's A little comparison of these two feedings of these two massive crowds in Mark's gospel. But there are also some significant differences. Look at those really quickly. Let me summarize them, right? Here are the big differences, right? In the first one in chapter 6, right, this is a Jewish region. Jesus is ministering to Jews. He wants these people, his people that he has come to, to experience the bounty that he is providing, the teaching that he gives in this second feeding of the 5,000. It's in a Gentile region. And so we see Jesus, the bounty of Jesus' care, his feeding of these massive multitudes, going forward to the Gentiles. In, in uh, the first feeding, and back in chapter 6, it's one day. The people are there for a day. And the teaching in this second one, people were there for three days without food before Jesus feeds them. Um, in the first one, people, there are villages nearby, and so people just send them to the villages. In this second one, there's no villages nearby, and Jesus said, they're going to faint from hunger if I send them away. They've, they've come from too far away. On the first 
First feeding, people are nearby, and the second one, people are from far away. First feeding involves 5,000 men, could have been even more. The second is 4,000. And in this last one, there are five loaves, two fish, and then finally, chapter 8, seven loaves and a few fish. Finally, the first parable, 12 baskets left over. Interestingly, he's ministering to Jews, representing the 12 tribes. And then this second second feeding, seven baskets left over, uh, just symbolizing, again, the bounty of Jesus' ministry to the Gentiles. So why does Mark include these two feedings back-to-back almost? One in chapter 6, one in chapter 8, with so many similarities, just a few differences. What is Mark trying to communicate? Right, The stories are so similar, some liberal commentators have thought that it's a duplicate. Right, with details simply getting confused. And so it's the same story. You know, the witnesses got it differently, and Mark has just kind of carelessly slapped it in there. But Mark is a master storyteller who utilizes every word and every scene. As the shortest gospel, he is going for maximum impact, right? He cuts many of the stories the other gospel writers include. Um, and so here, in this choice of including a second feeding, Mark is doing something intentional, right? These double miracles highlight Jesus' incredible patience with his disciples, right? Jesus feeds them one time, they still don't get it. So Jesus feeds another crowd of 4,000 people. The disciples still don't get it, but like a parent with his kids, Jesus is just so patient in repeating himself, repeating the teaching, repeating the miracle, so that his disciples will finally understand who he is and what he's like. Jesus has this incredible patience, and it's highlighting disciples who aren't getting it, they're confused, they still don't understand. Jesus continues to minister to them uh, by doing the same thing again and again and again until they finally get it. Jesus is also spreading a feast, not just for the Jews, but in this second uh, feeding here to the Gentiles, right? Symbolizing the beautiful feast that's going to be spread even before Uh, the Gentile world. And so the second feeding of this crowd sets up the next two scenes here. Okay, the first one, the Pharisees demand a sign. So Jesus has done this incredible miracle where he's fed 4,000 people, right? There's been loaves and loaves left over. Um, And immediately Jesus takes off as he does to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And we pick it up here, I'm going to pick it up in verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Right? The Pharisees have been following Jesus and heckling him whenever they get the chance. That's why Jesus has been on the move. The time isn't right for a showdown with the religious establishment or with the Romans. So Jesus keeps moving around, right? His ministry all over the region of Galilee. I mean, he goes up to Tyre and Sidon. He's up at Caesarea Philippi. He is on the move. Other than in chapter 3, The Pharisees always seem to be one step behind, missing the latest miracle. But they're dogging his every step, uh, trying to trip him up. Now that they've finally caught up with him, they demand a sign, right? They want to see a miracle authenticating his ministry and authority. By what authority are you doing all these things? And Mark tells us their motives. He said they wanted to test him. They wanted to trip him up. They wanted to expose him as a fraud. They wanted to find something that they could use against him. And Jesus just sighs in apparent sadness or exasperation. I don't know which. 
and refuses to give them a sign. And you think, why not another miracle, right? Settle it once and for all. It'll be a showdown of the miracles, right? Just to be like, told you so, showed you guys. Uh, But Jesus is piling up miracles for the disciples, even the crowds. Like, I mean, two healings. He's calming the sea twice, feeding multitudes of crowds twice, you know, healing demon-possessed people, healing people with sicknesses. Um, why does he refuse to give a sign to the Pharisees? Or he refuses to offer a sign because they have already made up their minds and are hard-hearted. Even a sign from heaven couldn't get through. The case in point is chapter 3, right, where Jesus heals the man with a shriveled hand right in front of the Pharisees. And all they can see is that this healing is a violation of the Sabbath. It's this massive exercise in missing the point. They've just seen a man healed in front of them, but they can't see it. They don't have eyes to see. They don't have ears to hear. Their hearts are hardened to the gospel, right? Close-minded, hard-hearted people are the most difficult to reach, right? You may have friends, family members, or coworkers that are just in a place like this, right? They have a skeptical answer for anything. You say anything about religion, spirituality, they always have an anecdote about some corrupt preacher or some, you know, bogus, you know, you know, religious study they found or some sociological figures and never really are receptive to God's work in their life. They're simply not open to what Jesus has to say, right? You can reason with them all day and get nowhere. And sometimes, right, all you can do is sigh at people's hearts. It's, it's sad, right? And stepping into this holiday season, you know, we'll have lots of opportunities of engaging with friends and family, some both near and far to Jesus. And we've got an opportunity even in how we interact and engage and minister to the people around us to to demonstrate uh, the beauties of the gospel. And here Jesus, he's just sad. He's just grieved. Um, But he's not going to give them a sign because it wouldn't do any good. So the Pharisees demand a sign, but they don't really want to follow Jesus. What about disciples? Are they finally getting it? Uh, We pick up the story here in 14 uh, through... 21. Surely, right, the disciples fresh off feeding 4,000 people, right, they, they've got it. This is their, their moment. They're going to step up to the plate. So we read again in verse 14, now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat and he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that he had no bread that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand what's going on, right? This is bread is a a recurring theme in this part of Mark's gospel, if you've been following along, right? Here in verse 14 and 16, the disciples realize they only have one loaf of bread in the boat. You know, they've been just on a frenetic ministry pace across the lake, back across the lake, doing all of this incredible work. And they realize, oh, wait a minute, we forgot to bring any food for our snack between ministry sessions. How are they going to respond? And we think, of course, fresh off this feeding of the 4,000, how could they possibly be worried about food 
But that's exactly what they're doing, right? They're anxious, they're unhappy. What are we going to do? We only have one loaf of bread. How are we going to split it up, you know? Yeah, they're, they're, they're eyeing it up in their minds. How are we chopping this thing up? Because this is going to be a really small, small meal. And Jesus responds by warning them of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. What is he talking about here? What are the leaven? Like, leaven and bread? Like, you know, it's the, kind of, you know, it's the stuff that makes the bread rise. But, like, what, what is he talking about? Right? They're in danger, Jesus is saying, of seeing the miracles but not understanding the point of the miracles, right? Like the Pharisees. They, they, they want, you know, they're in danger of seeing the sign but not actually understanding what it means. Jesus' questions in verse 17 through 21 are rhetorical. He's like, again, like an exacerbated parent. How are you guys, exasperated parent? How do you guys still not get it? Now, I think on the one hand, we can take some real comfort from the fact that the disciples don't get it because we struggle to believe and follow Jesus, right? It wasn't automatic from these guys. It took lots of time. If Jesus' original disciples needed gospel safety and time, right, so do we, right? Yeah, but this response is also an invitation and a challenge, right? And so this morning, what cares are you bringing with you? What, what felt needs, what concerns did you walk into the room with? How aware of, your, of Jesus' ability to meet those needs are you? Jesus' ability to care for you, right? Maybe you could trust him with the small things, but not with the, the big things in your life. You just wonder, I don't know, I think I can trust him with some of those, or maybe it's the opposite. You're trusting him with the big things, but still struggle to remember him when it comes to the little things, those little annoyances, little frustrations in your life. Tough to bring those cares and concerns to Jesus. Friends, here is the beauty of Jesus. He keeps pursuing their hearts, as he has throughout Mark's gospel. In fact, he arranges another miraculous sign to help the disciples see more clearly. And so we see here in this fourth story in our sequence this morning, moving right along, and I want to pick it up for you in verse 22 through 26, our final story here. And Jesus is leading his disciples to a deeper understanding of who he is. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit in his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. That's an interesting expression. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored. He saw everything clearly, and he sent him home saying, do not even enter the village. This is a very interesting story. Undeterred by the Pharisees' hardness of heart and his disciples' lack of faith, Jesus continues to pile up miraculous signs in fulfillment of the scriptures, right? We read this passage last week, Isaiah 35, 5 through 6, when the Messiah comes, right? We read these words, and the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. These prophecies are being fulfilled in their midst. Isaiah 29, 18, in that day, the deaf shall hear the words of the book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see, right? The prophecies are being fulfilled in their midst. Jesus is on the scene Healing that we saw last week, right? 
uh, opening the mouth of the mute, healing the deaf, um, opening the eyes of the blind. This is the kind of thing Jesus is doing. But Jesus is doing more than just fulfilling prophecies and helping a blind man to see. He's helping the disciples see more clearly. I think that's why the healing takes place in two parts. It's both a sign and a parable, a miraculous work and a memorable lesson for his disciples. And this is why, I think context is support, why Jesus takes the man by the hand and leads him out of the village. Jesus is doing something more than a quick sign. Could you just imagine Jesus walking, this poor guy who's been blind, we don't know how long, um, at some point along the way in his life, he lost his sight. And Jesus just comes up, just takes this man by the hand and leads him through the village. Just the tenderness of Jesus. I would have loved to be along for that conversation. See what that conversation was like. Is Jesus leading this man through the village, outside? Um, and, and this is clear. It's not for the benefit of the crowd. It's not even for this man's friends. Jesus is going to very personally take this man by the hand, walk him outside the village. And after he leads him out of the village, then he begins his healing. Again, he spits in his eyes, which is strange. We're not quite sure why, why, why what's, what part saliva has to play in this whole process as the previous healing that we looked at. Uh, but that's what Jesus does. And he, and he asks the man, do you see anything? Right? And this is an important question. The man says, well, I see men, but they look like trees walking. <laughs> not like ants if you're in the hobby. These are like a strange, weird little situation here. I see men, but they look like trees. And so clearly this guy has understood He's seen men before. He knows what they're supposed to look like, and they don't look like that. They look like trees. Clearly, the healing has not quite completed the purpose. And we know throughout the rest of the gospel, Jesus isn't like, oh, man, let me try to get this right here. Let's go to plan B here. Let me go to miracle work number two or, you know, magic spell number three. Like, this is not Jesus' MO, right? When Jesus heals someone, they are immediately healed on the spot. That has been the precedent every single miracle Jesus has done. What's Jesus doing here? Everything Jesus has done is done with a purpose. It's intentional, right? And so Jesus touches his eyes a second time, and he sees perfectly clearly, right? This is another act of compassion by Jesus for a man who's lost his vision, and another powerful design for disciples, but it's also an equally powerful object lesson. Uh, uh, the great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones concludes, I believe he dealt with the blind man as he did in order to give them a picture of themselves. Isn't that interesting? He says, I believe he dealt with a blind man as he did in order to give them a picture of themselves. Like the blind man, the disciples are starting to see, but they need another touch from Jesus to see him clearly, right? After all of these signs, after all these miracles, you know, Jesus fed a crowd of 5,000 and 4,000. The blind are seeing, the deaf are, are hearing, you know, the mute are speaking. After all of these things, the disciples are still like arguing about a loaf of bread. Like, where are we going to get our next meal from? Lloyd-Jones goes on to argue that Jesus was painting a picture of those who've been touched by God in some way, but are also but are still struggling to see him clearly. And this picture applies not only to the disciples, but to anyone today who has an incomplete understanding of Jesus. Uh, Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, they seem to know enough about Christianity to spoil their enjoyment of the world, and yet they do not know enough to feel happy about themselves. They're neither hot nor cold. They see, and yet they do not see. I think you will agree that I am describing a condition, alas, of large numbers of people. And as a good preacher, 
he concludes this way. He says, it is a distressing condition. And my whole message, as you may anticipate, is to say that nobody should be in it. Nobody should stay in it. And I will go further still. Nobody need stay in that condition, right? We don't have to stay here because Jesus is committed to both helping this blind man see clearly and helping his blind disciples see clearly. He is leading them to a clear understanding of his identity, which brings us finally to Jesus' most important question, right? Jesus has been taking these disciples, as it were, and just leading them by the hand to a deeper understanding of who he is and what he's like. And I hope that is the same for us this morning as we're following along the journey that we just feel led along by the hand to Jesus this morning as he opens our eyes more and more to who he is and what he's like. And so all this sets the stage for Jesus' most important question. This is the, the midterm exam, if you will, in Mark's gospel. Some of you guys have been through the midterms, right, just in school, seminary, whatever. This is the, the midterm examination. Jesus once again tests them to see if they are starting to understand, right? This is going to be a dangerous question. Um, so Jesus goes as far from Jerusalem as possible, all the way north to Caesarea Philippi, if you're familiar with Palestine. I mean, this is the farthest north you can get far away from Jerusalem, the epicenter of Judaism as he can. And once he gets there, he asks them two questions. So there's two questions on the midterm exam. And this is like pass or fail. <laughs> so you either get these right or you don't get these right, period. Uh, and this is going to be the great turning point in Mark's gospel. And so I'll read these words, these questions. Again, in verse 27, Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Right? And he gets a variety of responses, right? John the Baptist, right? Which Herod has already said, is John the Baptist come back from the dead? What is going on? I got rid of this one great preacher, and now another one has popped up, and he's doing miracles, and like, what do we do with this guy? Um, others say Elijah, right, which was a popular expectation, because Elijah was an incredible miracle-working prophet during the time of the kings. And of course, Malachi 4.5, the final chapter of the Hebrew scriptures, right, you know, there's a promise of return of the prophet Elijah. And everyone's thinking, is this Elijah returned? Come in prophecy of all God's things. Or maybe one of the other prophets. Maybe one of the other great prophets that have come along. If Jesus posed that question today, what would people say? What do you think people would say? Who do you say that I am? What might be some of the samples out there? A good moral teacher, you know, kind of, you know, like, one of the other great religious, like the Buddha or Muhammad or, you know, one of the great religious teachers, uh, maybe a great activist, you know, like Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr., somebody who was out there crusading for the right causes and the right things, and we can be inspired by his selfless leadership. Maybe a revolutionary, uh, like uh, Reza Aslan's book, Zealot, you know, where he talks about Jesus just being a, a product of his time, a revolutionary, like all the other revolutionaries um, in that point, or maybe a legend or mythological figure, right? If you're in your college classes, you know, you know, the historical Jesus, you know, is, you know, we know very little about, you know, most of Jesus in the scriptures, you know, many would say today, he's just a legend, he's a myth, you know, that, that really has, has grown, you know, the church created this persona out of the man, the myth, and then the legend. So who do you say that I am, is the, the second question coming out of this question here. Right? They tell him all the different options, and then he asks them 
But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Peter answered on behalf of the 12, and he, he passes the examination. He says, you are the Christ. Now, this name Christ is actually not a name. It's not a last name. It's actually a title translated from the Hebrew word anointed one. In the Old Testament, there were three different offices where people were anointed with oil, uh, representing God's spirit coming on for a specific office. Prophets, priests, and kings were all anointed with oil to represent God's spirit coming on them for the important work and calling that God had for them to do. But by the first century, right, this anointed one was always viewed as a king, kind of the priests and prophets had kind of fallen out of the picture, and there's this expectation of a king, and there was great biblical precedent for that. I read Psalm 2 this morning as our call to worship. Uh, 2 Samuel 7 talks about this everlasting covenant that God's going to make with David and his throne. The prophets talk about a king that will come. So Peter is, in essence, saying Jesus is Israel's long-awaited Messiah, their long-awaited king. His miracles show his rule over sickness, sin, Satan, death, and over all the natural world. Jesus is God's king, come to set all the things that are broken and fallen right, including our relationship with God. This is what Jesus has been teaching his disciples up until this point, and, and they finally get it. Jesus is king. Jesus is the Messiah, come to set God's world right. From here on out, Jesus will be instructing him on how he will come into his kingdom and what kind of king he's going to be, right? He's in a king that lays down his life for his people. We're going to be moving towards the cross, but for now, they've made a good start, right? Jesus is king. Jesus is the Messiah. So how about you? Who do you say that I am? Are you still trying to make up your mind, still waffling a little bit on who Jesus is and what he is like. Uh, one of my uh, favorite quotes, probably my most quoted C.S. Lewis quote that I give, uh, really reminds us of this. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So the first step to get straight in your mind is Jesus' true identity. Who is he, right? And the second question we have to wrestle with is the implications of that for our everyday lives, right? What would need to change if Jesus were truly king of my life? What would it look like to radically realign our lives around the kingship of Jesus, right? What would we need to change? What would we need to add, subtract, right? Maybe the Holy Spirit is already putting his finger on something in your life right now. If Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is King, maybe there are portions of your life right now that are outside of his rule and reign, things that you're just kind of like, you can have this part of my life, but, but there's a stiff arm somewhere 
going on, right? We're confronted with the claims of Jesus as our king. Are there areas that are not submitted to Jesus? Are there areas where we're not bowing the knee to King Jesus, right? That's a sobering question for us to consider as we think about the way we use our time and our talents and our energies and our resources and our passions and all of those things. We can do a little audit here and think and reflect on all of that. I want to close here. Uh, I once again circle back around to, uh, to Kanye and his final and his words here, right? That every knee shall bow, right? Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Every knee shall bow, right? Every tongue confess Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Are we going to do that willingly this morning? Are we going to lay down, right, our comforts and our priorities and all of the things that we cling to, right? Or ultimately, at the end of time, will we have to bow the knee to Jesus when we sit before his throne and have to give an account for our lives? Oh, that we would be a church that loves to bow the knee to King Jesus, to submit our lives to his very good plans and his very good designs for us and people that are living for his kingdom, joyfully a part of his work in the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for King Jesus. Uh, We thank you that he is Lord and ruler over all, over the big political Uh, situations swirling around us. He's Lord of the little things in our lives, of our careers and our relationships and our kids and our um, circumstances. God, you reign over all. I pray that truth would bring great comfort, great hope to our hearts this morning, um, and that you would bring us more deeply into the joy of living under your rule. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.